this week we're looking at uh, I am the door or the gate, uh, and we'll be looking at John uh, chapter 10 in a moment. You know, throughout my career, I, um, I have many interviews uh, for jobs, uh, and during the course of those interviews, uh, people were keen to find out not just what I'd done or what my qualifications were, uh, they could read that on a piece of paper, uh, but they were interested in finding out about the real me. What, what was I like? Who was I as a person? Um, and many organizations use psychometric testing and other tests to try and find that out. And I can remember one where uh, the opening part of the questionnaire was a list of some hundred plus adjectives, and I had to circle the ones, I think it was the ten that I would use to describe myself. Uh, and then uh, I, had, I didn't know what was coming later in the test, so later in the test, there was the same list of 100-plus adjectives, and I had to circle the ones that other people had used to describe me or uh, had said about me. Uh, and this was just a prelude to further questioning, which was uh, really to identify whether those adjectives that I'd identified tied up in reality with what I'd done and the way in which I operated uh, in my job. Um, so those came out in stories that I told and so on. So this afternoon we're continuing our series looking at Jesus and specifically who he was. Uh, there was an occasion when Jesus was traveling around Caesarea Philippi uh, when he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Uh, and they replied that some said John the Baptist uh, or Elijah or one of the other prophets. And he then said, but well, who do you say I am? And uh, for Peter, who wasn't always known for getting things right, uh, for Peter, this was one of his highs. He actually he got it right. He came out straight away with, well, you're the Messiah. Fantastic. You know? Well, in this series, we're not looking at what others said about Jesus, but rather what Jesus said about himself. And in doing so, we're taking the eyewitness account of John, uh, recorded in his gospel. Over the course of this seven-part series, we see a number of things Jesus said about himself. And in every case, Jesus uses a noun. I found that really interesting. And on, on only two occasions does he prefix that noun with an adjective. We see Jesus being very natural in taking the things that he saw around him, the situations and so on, and using them to explain to the people who he was and using examples of everyday common objects to illustrate his message. In the first of our series, Owen looked at Jesus' description of himself as the bread of life. He told those who followed after him, uh, after his miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and who were looking to him to feed them again, that if they fed on him, they would never hunger and would have eternal life. And that was in marked contrast to their forefathers who, you know, when they were in the desert, in the wilderness, uh, they hungered after they'd eaten the manna. So manna was provided for them, they fed on it, but they still got hungry. Uh, and eventually they died. Then last week, Owen spoke on Jesus' description of himself as the light of the world. The only light in a world of darkness the light that reveals our sin and our rebellion against God. 
This tied into the Feast of Tabernacles and also into the response of the Pharisees uh, to the woman caught in adultery. We looked at the encouragement for us to walk in the light as Christians. So this week we're going to move on and look at Jesus' description of himself as the gate or the door. And this is recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 10. And we're going to read the first 10 verses of that chapter now. Uh, They will come on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, then follow it in your Bible as well. Okay, so John chapter 10, verse 1. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is a shepherd of of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they don't recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So firstly, before we delve into that, let's just understand the context uh, for this passage. And to do so, we have to dive back into chapter 9. And in in chapter 9, we read uh, that this comes right on the back uh, of a story of Jesus healing a man who'd been blind from birth. Jesus' disciples uh, were concerned at why he was blind. Uh, and you know, uh, they were more concerned about why he was blind than, than about his healing, actually. Uh, and so they wanted to know whether he had sinned. You know, he'd been blind from birth, remember? Whether he had sinned, or actually was it his parents who had sinned, and was that why he was blind? And Jesus was clear that neither was true, but that his blindness was an opportunity for God's power to be displayed in his life. The Pharisees, though, had a different concern. Their concern was that the healing took place on the Sabbath. That was an absolute no-no as far as they were concerned. And therefore, some of them concluded that Jesus couldn't be from God, while others were confused as to how a sinner could have performed such a miraculous sign. And then the story ends with the Pharisees, the shepherds of the people, throwing the healed man out and Jesus revealing to him that he is the son of man, resulting in him believing and worshipping him. In the verses we read, Jesus uses the illustration of sheep and how they're cared for. He describes a sheep pen with a gate. In those days, there might well have been a walled enclosure attached to the shepherd's dwelling and as nightfall came, Uh, the sheep would be gathered into that enclosure for their safety and for their security. 
They wouldn't stay there during daylight hours, as they needed to be led to pastures where they, would, where they could feed. There's a lot I could say about the shepherd and his relationship to the sheep. But in a spoiler alert, um, I'm not going to do that, because Owen will be speaking uh, on the good shepherd, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, uh, next week, I think. So we'll avoid talking about the shepherd, but my focus is going to be on Jesus as the gate or the door. Being described as an inanimate object uh, isn't the most flattering thing, is it? Um, Someone once described me as a brick. Um, I wondered what aspects of a brick they had in mind. You know, I think of a brick as rough and angular. Uh, But actually, they explained that uh, they thought of dependability and solid and, you know, someone who can be relied on. Which, okay. Um, but here it's Jesus describing himself as the gate or the door. And we can be sure that if Jesus is using that picture, it has real depth and meaning. So this afternoon I want us to look at some different aspects of the gate. And the first one is the gate by which we are defined, is made clear to us in this passage. Walls are useful. Actually, I wished I'd had walls around my garden um, this morning uh, because then the garden would still be secure as it is there are three fence panels that are down. But walls are useful. They're used to create boundary or a dividing line, often to prevent uh, or limit access, or in some some cases to limit uh, exit. Gates are also useful. If the countryside was made up of fields with no gates, what use would that be? The sheepfold was made up of walls and a gate. Both were necessary. At its most basic, the gate defined who was inside and who was outside. We see this in so many settings today. Consider a sporting occasion. Many of you are sports uh, fans, I'm sure. In many sports, the spectators can coexist alongside one another, but regrettably, the passions around some uh, football supporters and and their teams are such that they have to be segregated. Uh, And so here we have uh, a home supporters only uh, gate into a football ground. And if you find yourself in the wrong area of football ground and uh, happen to cheer at the wrong time for the wrong team, uh, it could be a very dangerous thing uh, for your well-being. There are prison gates that define who's inside and who's outside. They define those inside as being those who've committed some heinous crime um, and those outside who either haven't or haven't been caught. And then there's border crossings. Border crossings define who is a resident of the country and who isn't. Those who... Uh, live and are citizens of a land and those who are not. The gate in this story also defines who we are. In the first part of verse 9, we read, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So what can we learn from this? Well, firstly, that those inside the sheepfold are saved. Just as we're either in the football ground or not, or in prison, or not, or a citizen of a country, or not, the Bible teaches that we are either saved or not yet saved. 
There's no halfway house. Yes, there's a journey. We often talk about people being on a journey, and for so many, that's true. They've not yet come to the point of making a commitment and all that entails. They're exploring. They're learning. They're questioning more about Jesus and the Christian faith. And that's okay. That's one of the reasons why we run Alpha courses, uh, as we're doing at the moment. I would guess that few of us, if any, in this room had the sort of experience that Saul had on the road to Damascus. The persecutor of the early church, you know, he was turned in a flash of light from persecutor of the early church and non-believer to a follower of Jesus, literally in a flash. He saw Jesus, he heard the voice of Jesus speaking to him. For most of us, the journey is much longer. But we need to reach a point of response and assurance of faith. For me, growing up in a Christian family, I knew lots about Jesus and his teachings. I'd taken scripture exams as a child. I went to church every Sunday. I was part of a youth group. But there came the time when the Holy Spirit helped me realize that that wasn't enough, that just because my parents had made a decision to follow Jesus, it didn't in some way gain me access into the sheepfold. It didn't enable me to be saved. It required a response on my part. Secondly, we see from this verse that they're saved by entering through Jesus. So verse 9 tells us what our state is will be when we are inside the sheepfold, but how do we get in there? Well, a gate can be both a barrier and an access point, a passageway, if you like, into the sheepfold. And verse 9 tells us that it's through this passageway or gate or through Jesus that we gain access into the sheepfold. Who here has read or seen the film version of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Anyone? Oh, just a few. Okay. Oh, excellent. Okay. Was that recently? Was that at the cinema? Yeah? Good stuff. Okay. So I've got a question for you. It's not a trick question. So when does Christian get saved? When does Christian get saved? Anyone want to venture an answer to that? So Christian's on this journey to the celestial city. When does he get saved? Okay, well, sorry? He comes to the cross, yes. Ah, his burden falls off, yes. Okay, that's very good. But I, I want to suggest to you that actually, Christian gets saved when he goes through the wicket gate. Yeah? So the wicket gate is a narrow gate. And as Christian goes through there, he gets saved. That gate is equivalent of, of Christ in that story. So he gets saved there. So if he gets saved there, I mean, Mary, right, he was still carrying his burden until he got to the cross. Why was he still carrying his burden after he'd been through the wicket gate? Well, the answer is, he's, sorry, go on. He needed assurance. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> he was still carrying the guilt and the shame of his sin after he'd been through the wicket gate. He hadn't shed that. He hadn't got rid of that. And it was still with him. 
And so he was still carrying that burden. But he'd been through the wicket gate, and that was the point of his uh, salvation. There's a very common word, a very short word, but a very common word in this verse. And it's so important. Jesus doesn't say, I am a gate. He says, I am the gate. He tells us that there is only one access point, only one entry point, only one way to salvation and into heaven. Now, I recognize this isn't popular teaching in a society where many believe that there are many roads or maybe even all roads that lead to heaven. Some years ago, Franklin Graham, son of the great evangelist Billy Graham, was disinvited, disinvited, <laughs> from, as a speaker for the National Day of Prayer Service because of statements he'd made about Islam and assertions he'd made that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message of salvation and that Jesus is the only saviour. A subsequent article in the Washington Post referenced a poll conducted by an evangelical polling firm which revealed that many evangelicals under the age of 30 believe that there are many ways to God, not just through Jesus. This thinking, universalism, regrettably isn't confined to the States. It's rife in this country. We will encounter it. If you haven't already, you will encounter it. Sadly, it's we who believe that Jesus is the only way who will be viewed as narrow-minded and extreme. We must, however, stay true to what Scripture teaches us. In John 14 and verse 6, we read another of Jesus' I am statements when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in Acts chapter 4, when Peter is talking uh, before the Sanhedrin, uh, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But that doesn't mean that we should consider ourselves some exclusive society. Not at all. As with evangelists in Pilgrim's Progress, we're called to point those around us toward the gate, toward Jesus, so that they too can be saved and walk with him. And so the, th the third thing I want us to look at from this verse, verse 9, is that the invitation is to all. In, in verse 9 we read, I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. Yeah? So it's not exclusive in the sense that the invitation is to all. It's a general invitation. But the response has to be an individual one. There's another passage that talks about gates. It comes in uh, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 7, uh, where we read, Enter through the narrow gate, for the wide gate Sorry, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There is a wide gate, 
It's easy to get through. You can actually go through as a crowd if you want to. Uh, it's wide enough for whole groups to go through. If we find our popularity amongst men, we can get through uh, that gate very easily. We can continue in our sinful ways, living lives to please ourselves rather than our maker. Around us every day and on the media, in the media, we're confronted daily with examples of hatred, selfishness, sexual immorality, lust, lying, stealing, unkindness, envy, and so much more. And we know we're not immune. Those who choose to continue living this way and who reject the offer of salvation from Jesus will pass through the wide gate and will find the road that leads on from there broad enough for them to continue in these ways. But the stark warning in this verse is that that road leads to destruction or an eternity separated from God. But there's also a narrow gate. It's hard to find and it's difficult to get through. Some commentators describe it as trying to get through between two uh, rocks, two large rocks. In order to get through it, we have to recognize, confess and turn away from our old sinful nature. We have to accept the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, cancelling out the penalty for our sin and acknowledge that we've done nothing to merit his favour. It's the kindness and grace of God alone extended to us. We can then pass through that narrow gate. To do so, we'll be in the minority. Many of our friends and family and colleagues will think we're strange when we choose not to go with the crowd. And even when we've passed through the gate, we're not promised an easy life. Jesus tells us that narrow is the gate that leads to life. Sorry, narrow is the road that leads to life. For Christian in Pilgrim's progress, there were many challenges after he'd gone through the wicket gate. The wicket gate was only the start of a journey where he faced many trials and temptations on his way to the celestial city. And so it is with us. The road is narrow and we'll be tempted to fall back into our old sinful ways. We'll be presented with all sorts of opportunities to take detours and go up blind alleys rather than proceed on the road that's marked out for us. But we have the promise of life if we follow the road. Life on earth and eternal life with him when our days are over. The descriptions I gave earlier of someone being either in the football ground or not, or in prison or free, or citizen of a country or not, may seem harsh when applied to the Christian life. However, this isn't my assessment. It's based on what Jesus said. Just after another incident when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, this time a man who'd been lame for 38 years, Jesus was answering the Jews who were angry at him for breaking the Sabbath, and also for calling God his Father. In the account in John's Gospel, chapter 5, it's recorded that Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed from death to life. For me, it follows from that 
that those who've not believed do not have eternal life and stand to be condemned. I don't take joy in, in, in making that statement, but that's what follows from what Jesus has said. And for me, that's a frightening prospect. I've got family members, friends, neighbors who don't know Jesus. You know, and that's, that's the destiny for them unless they meet Jesus and turn to him and follow him. And that's true for us in this room this afternoon. You know, you don't have to stay in the condition of being outside, outside the gate, outside the kingdom. You can cross from death to life. You can avoid the wrath of God that is the consequence of our sin. And there's more good news too that this is all possible through what Jesus has already done in going to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. All you have to do is repent and ask his forgiveness and believe in him. Okay, so the next major point, if you like, point number two, is the gate that protects us, putting us in a safe place. So in verse 10, we read, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life. Jesus tells us in this passage that there are others who would seek to gain access to the sheepfold. They can't get in because of the, through the gate, so they try to climb in over the wall, and their motives aren't good. They're looking to steal, kill, and destroy. They're thieves and they're robbers. You know, it must be a, th- a fearful thing to live in constant danger and always on the run for fear for your life. David, the shepherd boy who went on to become king of Israel, was no stranger to being on the hit list. Uh, Many of the Psalms contain his pleas to God to save and rescue him, or in some cases, his thanks to God for delivering him from his enemies. In Psalm 143, David cries out, Give ear to my prayer, prayer, O Lord, for the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places. But then elsewhere, he writes in Psalm 34, we, we read, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. You know, so he was in a deep depth of despair, but God answered him and delivered him from his fears. Safety and security is something we value very highly in today's society. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world live in constant fear for their lives or the lives of their children uh, because of their decision to follow Jesus. Open Doors, the Religious Freedom Charity, reported last month on the increase in Christian persecution around the world. In one case, a Malaysian woman who said that she, when she converted to Christianity uh, from Islam, her husband told her to choose between him and Jesus. When she, told Je- when she chose Jesus, he threw her and her five kids out on the street. If you convert to Christianity, it brings so much shame and dishonor on your family, was his view. Speaking about Jesus, she said, I know him. She'd had a personal encounter with Jesus, a personal encounter of such intensity that she was prepared to give up everything 
in order to hang on to Jesus. The psychologist Abraham Maslow, in his paper, A Theory of Human Motivation, written back in the 1940s, came up with a hierarchy of human needs. It was in the shape of a pyramid, with the more basic needs at the bottom. So at the very bottom, you've got our physiological needs, the need to eat and sleep, need for water, for health, and for shelter. He considered those to be our most basic needs. But the next segment of the pyramid was about our safety needs, personal, emotional, and financial security, safety against accidents and illness. These were considered actually even far more important than friendships and family and self-esteem. Safety is something we value very highly. We might think that having come inside the sheepfold, having been saved, that we'll be immune from attack. Far from it. We need to understand we're in a spiritual battle and that as we seek to live out our Christian lives, the devil will use other people and situations we face to try to trip us up and rob us of our joy and our peace. We shouldn't be surprised when such challenges arise. In his first letters to the Christians scattered around Asia Minor, the first century apostle Peter writes, Be be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Some years ago, I saw a theatre production of Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, The letters are intended to be amusing, but nonetheless insightful correspondence between Screwtape, a senior devil, uh, and his incompetent nephew, Wormwood, who was a young fiend in training. And Wormwood's task was initially to stop his target, who was called the patient, uh, from becoming a Christian. Well, he failed at that. Uh, And so uh, Screwtape proposes to Wormwood all sorts of devices and devious schemes to get into patient's mind and to influence him. He seeks to cause division between the patient and his mother. He seeks to cause division between the patient and others in the church. Uh, And he tries to keep him from praying at all. That would be disastrous if he prayed. Does it all sound rather familiar? How is it for us? Can you identify times when you've felt you're really stepping out and wanting to serve God and be used by him, and then all manner of things crop up and get in the way? You've determined you want to spend quality time reading your Bible and praying, and then the kids kick off, interruption after interruption, and you find you got to the end of the day and you haven't been able to do what you wanted uh, to do. Or you've committed to giving uh, to the church, and then all of a sudden, you know, the car breaks down or the washing machine packs up or some unexpected utility bill arrives and you're under pressure. God assures us, though, that we are ultimately safe in the battle. In 2 Corinthians 4, we read, but we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, 
but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. And then in 1 John 4, we read, You dear children are from God and have overcome them. That's them, the false prophets, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Hallelujah. What security we have in him. And then finally, the gate that gives us access uh, to life in all its fullness. This is good news, isn't it? Life in all its fullness. As we read on in John 10, uh, Jesus says that those that are saved will come in and go out and will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you know, I've had a number of conversations with people um, over the years who have said that a friend or relative who died lived life to the full. But then they go on and talk about that person. And it's clear from what they say that life to the full uh, for them meant that they lived to a ripe old age, you know, into their 90s or beyond. Or in other cases, that they worked really hard and you know, they enjoyed sports and hobbies. And uh, in other times, that, uh, that they had their fingers in many pies, dabbling at all sorts of things. They had a vast network of friends and acquaintances, living life to the full. Or maybe that they traveled extensively or accumulated vast wealth. But is that what Jesus meant? I don't think so. This description that Jesus gives us of the sheep pen is one of security. But we're not restricted in terms of our movements. We can come and go. The sheep are known by him and can always come back into the sheepfold, but are free to go and feed on good pasture. Likewise, we're known by him, and we're not restricted in the choices we make. As the shepherd makes sure the sheep are cared for and well-fed, so Jesus provides for us as his people. More than that, Jesus promised that we'll have life to the full or abundant life. The word used in this is, can be translated as beyond measure or considerably more than we might expect. So the promise is for a far better life than we could imagine or expect. Now before you go off and rush home to check your bank balance or to see whether there's a new car on the drive, uh, let me explain that Jesus isn't talking about material possessions or our standing in society. Nor is he promising us life free from sickness, pain, accidents, and suffering. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us not to worry about what we will wear or eat or drink. He says, for pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And in Romans 14, we're told, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. He is the one who gives us life who puts breath in our lungs each new day, 
who sustains us and provides for us. But the superabundance he talks of in this verse is not physical, but in the spiritual world. He's talking about eternal life, about us knowing God and walking day by day in his ways and becoming more like Jesus. As we come to a close, you know, when we, when we look at Scripture uh, on our own and when we look at it uh, together, you know, we need to ask ourselves, what, God, are you saying to me through this? Uh, and what does my response need to be? And as we draw to a close, I just want to uh, ask you a couple of questions, really. Firstly, you know, are you wavering outside of the gates? You know, are you still resisting God's call to follow him the invitation is there for you it's an open invitation but it's an invitation that has to be accepted by each person individually or are you a Christian and still feel weighed down by the guilt and the shame of your sin you know there's freedom there's freedom from that there's freedom from the burden of carrying that guilt and shame And Jesus alone can set us free from that. Or are you feeling battle-weary today? Just remember that God is greater. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Just in the quietness of this moment, make your response to, to God.